This is Yawa Radio. A warm welcome to the Yawa Radio podcast. The Yawa Radio podcast is an opportunity again to listen to one of our inspirational, thought-provoking interviews that we have brought to the listeners of Yawa Radio. Yawa Radio is online 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are your well-being and happiness radio station, bringing the feel-good feeling to every single day of the week. Check us out at yawaradio.co.uk. Now sit back and enjoy this podcast from the Yawa Radio team. Welcome to Jordan Space. Every fortnight, you can join me, your host, Steve Phillip, alongside Danielle and Paul from the Jordan Legacy team, together with some very special guests for an hour of conversation, music, and above all, hope. Welcome to Jordan Space. This show does discuss themes of suicide, and we'd encourage you to take care of yourself by stepping away from the show at any point, should you find the content triggering or uncomfortable to listen to. For support, please visit our website, thejordanlegacy.com, and our help menu options. Before we get into today's show, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back after this track. With inspirational guests from across the world, this is Yawa Radio. Welcome back. I'm Steve Phillip, and you're listening to Jordan Space. Every fortnight for 60 minutes, we want Jordan Space to be a place that you can come to and learn more about the issues surrounding what can often be seen as a taboo subject, suicide. Our mission is to open up the conversation in a way that helps more people feel comfortable about sharing their experiences of suicide, and in doing so, help smash the stigma surrounding this issue. Each 60-minute show will include conversations with our regular co-hosts, Danielle and Paul. We'll also provide regular updates about our work at The Jordan Legacy, and how it's progressing. And through a mix of conversation, guest stories, and music, our goal is to have you leaving Jordan space, feeling inspired, and believing that no matter how bad things get, there is always hope. Recently, the government, through the Department of Health and Social Care, published a discussion paper outlining their commitment to review and develop an updated long-term mental health plan. This discussion paper provided an opportunity for every member of the general public to share their views as to what should be included in that long-term plan due to be published at the end of 2022. Those working specifically in suicide prevention have long advocated for suicide to have its own long-term plan, even its own minister in government. Now at last, we're hearing that there will be a similar plan for suicide prevention, which is likely to be announced by the government a few weeks after the publication of the updated mental health plan. Welcome to the show, Danny and Paul. How are you both? Good, thank you. Very good, Steve. Good, good to have you uh, back now for our, our second show. Uh, look, uh, Paul, I, I've suggested that this is a revised and updated mental health plan. Is, is that a fair description, would you say? Yeah, there's been previous um, mental health plans and there has been two previous five-year suicide prevention plans first in in 2012 and then from 2017 up to now um, and there's been some form of you know research discussion consultation engagement but uh, this is a, a different approach from the government uh, to the plan to the to the consultation and it's a a 10-year plan and there's talk of having a long-term 
suicide prevention plan. The, the key issue for me is specifically focusing on suicide prevention because there's been this big consultation around the mental health plan, but suicide prevention hasn't really featured very much in that. Okay, yeah, I, I completed the online survey myself, and I have to say it wasn't uh, perhaps as straightforward as I might have anticipated. I actually found it quite a cumbersome process at times and came away feeling that for some sections of the survey, if you didn't have a certain level of knowledge and expertise of mental health and suicide, some of the questions were, were quite difficult to know how, how to answer. Yeah, I, I would agree. I found it um, I found it difficult, frustrating. Um, I found that it didn't really kind of give people the opportunity to express themselves. Obviously, they've got to have some kind of structure and they chose to go down that route with focusing on six key questions. Uh, only one of those questions really kind of covered suicide prevention. The, the final question was around crisis support, but everything else was broader mental health. And people have got so much to say. And I know from working in this field as a researcher, um, and an engagement professional for you know for, for a whole of my career that people really feel as if they want to be able to express themselves to pass on their experiences to pass on their suggestions to make all these great ideas they've got for improving mental health services and 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 you know preventing suicides uh, and and people will feel very restricted by that form of of consultation and, and actually there is some evidence that it's bad for people's mental health uh, if they don't feel as if they can actually express themselves and be heard. Wow, that's interesting. Danny, I suggested before that suicide has often taken somewhat of a back seat when it comes to the government's focus on mental health. I appreciate that you're not involved in all the research and discussions at the Jordan Legacy, as Paul and I often tend to be. But looking at it maybe from a member of the general public's perspective, how strange does it seem to you that only now are we seeing suicide prevention having its own long-term plan? Yeah, I think it's really taken far too long for suicide prevention to have its own long-term strategy. Um, for years now, we've, we've seen thousands of suicides um, every year and not enough has been done to tackle this, um, particularly when it is widely known that most suicides are preventable. And on top of all these suicides, you've got hundreds more attempting suicide, thousands more self-harming. Uh, it's so important that it has its own long-term plan to really focus on putting the right support and resources and funds in place to reduce the suicide numbers and, and help people really before it's too late. Um, it's so important to recognise the importance of, of early intervention. Yeah, and, and really interesting that you highlight the attempts on suicide. I think, you know, the last statistics I saw on this suggested that for every suicide, there are 20 more uh, people attempting. And, and, you know, figures for the end of 2021 showed that the NHS and A&E departments were seeing the highest number of young people presenting with uh, self-harm. So, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's there's this you know, huge issue around early intervention, as you say, to stop people going you know, down that, that route. Paul, you and I have spoken about this on a number of occasions, you know, thinking about the government's goal to develop a specific long-term plan for suicide prevention. If you were sitting in a room for an hour with ministers, maybe like Gillian Keegan, our Minister of State for Mental Health and Care, or representatives from the Department of Health and Social Care, who we meet, you know, regularly with, of course, what would you be wanting them to include in that long-term plan? Well, it's an interesting question and, and an interesting way of framing the question because um, just even thinking about who is the minister is, is a key issue. Uh, we did actually have in UK 
um, back in February 2019, a, a minister for suicide prevention, specifically appointed as a minister for suicide prevention, um, that was Jackie Doyle Price. And then and it was watered down with Nadine Doris being uh, mental health and suicide prevention. And then it's been watered down further with, um, you know, Gillian Keegan with a, a wide ranging portfolio, but it's care and mental health. And then there's a few sub portfolios, which includes suicide prevention, you know. So if you haven't got somebody specifically uh, with responsibility for suicide prevention, that in itself can be significant, you know, that there have been in other countries, you know, entire offices across government for suicide prevention in New Zealand, for example, and uh, in Australia, they had an office for suicide prevention in the prime minister's uh, departments, you know. So there's that issue for a start. If I did, if I was in, in a room with the minister, and I know you and I have meetings with um, officials from the Department of Health and Social Care, we're very, you know, very caring individuals trying to do what they can. Uh, but if, you, if you're having that conversation, then you've got to get some key messages across, like, um, you know, the focused actions that can be taken to prevent suicides and focusing on suicide specifically. Obviously, we've had a mental health plan and we've had consultation around a mental health plan, but we need to focus on suicide specifically. The two overlap. So obviously we do have lots of people tragically taking their own lives who had a long history of mental health uh, issues, mental illness, but there's also lots and lots of people sadly who take their own lives who have never had any history of mental health issues, have had no contact with the mental health system, have had all sorts of crises, financial crises, relationship crises, um, problems with addiction, chronic pain, all sorts of factors which lead to suicides. You know, it does need that whole of government approach and the key actions taken. Yeah, really interesting, as you say, you know, I think for a lot of people listening that, that you know, there will be this uh, association in their mind that, that suicide is directly related almost in every instance to mental health. But, you know, we're going through, a, a you know, one of the most difficult economic times in our in our history. We know financial impact, uh, risk of, of gambling and, and other associated problems, um, you know, can lead to people having thoughts of hopelessness and wanting to end their, their own lives. So um, I think it's really important to recognize that, you know, suicide can occur for you know, very different reasons other yeah. than just mental health problems. Absolutely. And, it, it, you know, it does need that whole of government approach. But also it needs a change of thinking from government because government does tend to have this mentality of, um, you know, of, of, you know, looking at, at an issue of th thinking about, you know, what the priorities are and what the trade-offs are. Now, in something like suicide prevention, you're talking about potentially prioritizing one group and not another group. And you're talking about you know, potentially reducing suicides among one group, but not in reducing suicides or even increasing suicides amongst other groups. If you get into that priority trade-off mentality and think it's all about how much money you spend on these things, uh, government has to realise that there are so many, so many different groups at risk. They can't do it all on their own. They've got to work and collaborate with all sorts of outside organisations in education, in communities and workplaces with the general public. Um, you know, and they've just got to get out of that mentality, which actually is part of the problem because the overall suicide numbers are not changing. Um, so, you know, it does need that different, uh, a different mentality of approach. And, and, you know, when you think about, you mentioned economic adversity there, it's a good example. Um, although we know that there is a direct relationship between, um, you know, between you know, unemployment and, and the suicide rate, uh, you know, again, it tends to be a sort of macro policy approach to it. The reality is that you've got people out there 
who are losing their jobs and who then become at risk of suicide? What support are they being given at the point at which they've lost their job when they're no longer getting support from an employer? Uh, you know, the, the Department of Work and Pensions doesn't, you know, isn't particularly interested in uh, providing, um, you know, counselling support to people who've lost their jobs. I think that's, you know, you just highlighted there, you know, how we can all play a role and it's not just about, you know, what the government can do. And, and you know, employers, for example, who are having to lay people off, um, you know, what, what are their processes, as you say, to support those individuals or signpost them? Um, I think that's a, a really valid point. It, look, it sounds like you, know, you, you probably need uh, more than an hour uh, <laughs> in that, that meeting, Paul. Uh, but uh, we've got um, um, a, a wonderful guest joining us today. The theme of our show today is life after loss uh, and really looking forward to the conversation we're about to have but we're going to take a short break now and we'll be right back after this you're listening to yawa radio and we love to bring you details of the inspirational book of the week this week's inspirational book of the week is the million copy bestseller called Mindset. Change the way you think to fulfill your potential. It's by Dr. Carol S. Dweck. Professor Dweck explains why it's not just our abilities and talent that brings us success, but whether we approach our goals with a fixed or growth mindset. With the right mindset, we can motivate our children to raise their grades, as well as reaching our own goals, both personal and professional. Mindset reveals what all great parents, teachers, CEOs and athletes already know. How a simple idea about the brain can foster learning and nurture the resilience that is the basis of accomplishment in every area. This week's inspirational book of the week is Mindset, Change the Way You Think to Fulfill Your Potential by Dr. Carol S. Dweck. Welcome back. Dr. Sangeeta Mahajan is a consultant anaesthetist at Guy's and St. Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust. She also describes herself as a mental health activist and educator on her website. Sangeeta lost her son, Saga, to suicide when he was just 20 years old. Two weeks before Saga's death, he had filled in a health questionnaire designed to evaluate his mental health over the preceding two weeks. Saga's responses to the questionnaire showed that his depression was the worst it could be and his score was also the highest it could be. I'm so pleased that Sangeeta is here with us today to share Saga's story and to also explain how she feels her son was let down by a national health service she thought she knew and understood well and one that she had expected would take the best possible care of her son. I'd like to welcome to the show Sangeeta Mahajan. Hello and welcome Sangeeta. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for having me on your show. Sankita, it, it's been almost eight years since Saga died, and I'd like to start by asking you if you'd mind sharing with our listeners something about your son and, and how you like to remember him. <laughs> I mostly remember him as a five-year-old. You know, he was just this adorable little thing, you know, and he was so spontaneous and full of joy, and as five-year-olds are. And as he grew up, you know, he um, came to be a really independent minded, um, very critically thinking uh, individual who was um, 
actually, of course, I can't be unbiased about this, as, as you might guess. But uh, I think, you know, he was just so affectionate, even for a 20 year old, you know, he loved his cuddles, and he was never shy away from it. And he was funny, he made me laugh so much. And that's one of the things I really miss about him. Um, he was his friends meant just the whole world to him, you know, he could spend hours on the phone with his friends. And, you know, it was really important to him that, you know, he have them over for meals, he go out with them. And um, he was really a linguist at heart, you know, he was passionate about languages. And at university, he was in fact learning Arabic, uh, because he wanted a challenge, you know, he thought, uh, he spoke French, actually, very very well he was an absolute francophile um, and um, he was also a fast bowler he was an ardent cricketer one of the highlights of his life was that he got to play with shoaib akhtar when uh, he was in dulwich college and um, he was also a passionate drummer so yeah he loved playing the drums so well well goodness me i mean there's a lot there as, as someone who plays the drums very averagely uh that that's <laughs> inc incredibly impressive i have a french wife so there's some connections there and, and paul's a paul's a cricket fan so um yeah, and i once saw a show back to playing the um uh the, the what was then the telstra stadium i think in melbourne and throwing the ball up to hit the roof effortlessly wow. <laughs> incredible look some really happy happy memories uh some incredible memories uh there of uh, saga uh, and thank you for sharing that sangeeta i don't know about you but i don't know much of my life and my work now often tends to be focused on talking about jordan's suicide rather than the the life he lived and sometimes i find i have to stop and remind myself to remember that we we had jordan for 34 wonderful years and during this time he was loved by many people and he achieved an incredible amount in his life as well. We're going to come on to the work that you have become involved with since you lost Saga alongside quite a busy day job as well, I understand. Before then, I'd like to explain about some of the issues, if you feel happy doing so, um, and the events which led up to Saga tragically taking his own life. Um, I'm referring specifically to some of the responses from mental health professionals and the NHS in general during the weeks and months leading up to Sargar's suicide? Mm. Yes, this is a really difficult time uh, of the year for me because this is when it all began about eight years ago. It was in 2014 when he came home from his, uh, uh, after his second year at university uh, in the summer holidays. Uh, that's when, you know, when they're so so away from home for longish periods of time, when they come back, you're always, uh, they are a little bit changed, you know, they're growing and growing in confidence and they're adolescents and changing depending on their friends and all that. And, you know, he seemed very high in confidence and I was sort of pleased about that. I didn't want to judge it or label it or anything. Sometimes it felt a little bit over the top, like you would say, Mom, I'm going to buy you a Mini Cooper not long from now. And I am such a fantastic drummer. Now, that was very unusual that he would say that himself, you know. It was unusual, but it's like you, you let it go. You know, you think, well, his confidence is building. It's okay. But then the very next month in August, then, you know, his behavior one day was a bit erratic and... Uh, we had to take him to A&E and he was diagnosed with hypomania 
and later in the month he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder um, by one of uh, the consultant psychiatrists and he was put on antipsychotics treated by the home treatment team at home got very much better um, really responded well to treatment and just as he got better it was beginning of September that's when it was time for him to go back to university and because he was studying French and Arabic at university this was his year out you know the third year so he was supposed to spend the first three months of uh, six months in Brussels and the second six months of the year in Jordan which had been uh, organized we had been there on a preliminary visit I had introduced him to families I knew there and so he was all set to go to Brussels so he was discharged by the psychiatric team to the GP with the view that he would go to university but just at that time he slipped into depression as happens with bipolar disorder that after the manic phase often a depression comes and um, by this time he was under the care of the GP and the GP was treating him with citalopram which later turned out was the most inappropriate thing because the GP was under the impression that he was treating him for unipolar depression because this in the discharge summary of the psychiatrist they did not tell the GP that this child had bipolar disorder so so clearly a breakdown in in communication between the, the health services neither the psychiatrist nor the GP communicated with us at any stage about his illness or his uh, suicidality because of course he was deemed an adult because he was over 18 while science has proven beyond doubt that adolescence extends up to the age of 25, that is when the prefrontal cortex fully develops and the decision-making ability is developed. Before that, they are adolescents and much more impulsive. So I felt terribly let down actually. And it came as a huge shock and surprise because there was no safety plan in place for him. There was no contingency plan that he did try to go to university, he went to Brussels, but he came back within two days because he was depressed, he couldn't cope. Mm. And there was nothing in place that, what if he does go to university and doesn't manage to cope? What, where would we go then? There was no, uh, the doors were shut behind us, basically. Can I just ask, ask you a question, Sang Gita, if I may, that, you know, you, you work in the NHS, obviously, uh, you know, in, in the area that you, you do. Um, how do you, you know, kind of compare this, you know, when you look at the, the role that you have, which we'll talk about a, a little bit more, um, this must have come quite as a, a shock to you to see the breakdown in communication through the mental health service of the NHS. Or, or does this happen, you know, throughout the NHS in your Well, you see, I'm very much a hospital doctor. And in my world, it would be unthinkable that such a thing would happen. Because, you know, all of NHS is all about patient safety. It's all about patient safety. And it's all about proper communication and situational awareness and all of those human factors, which I teach on a day-to-day -day basis. And yet all of this was happening in front of my eyes and I couldn't see it. It's only later on that I found out that there is a huge disparity between physical and mental illness, the way it's managed in the NHS. There is no parity of esteem, whether it comes to um, uh, training of the staff, 
the standards that are upheld, how the relatives are treated, how the inpatients are treated, how the paperwork is done, what the facilities are like, what the research is like. At every stage, mental health is lacking way, way behind the physical health aspect of things. Mm -hmm. You know, when I listen to you to you talking about the NHS and the systems, I do find it intriguing. And one of the reasons I find it intriguing is, is I grew up in a household where my parents revered the NHS. One of our relatives was very much heavily involved in, in creating the NHS and people worshipped the NHS. And so it was a great shock to the system in our family that several members of our family were then let down by the NHS. You know, and my mother, my father, um, you know, both had terrible experiences with the NHS. Uh, my son, when he was having treatment for a brain tumour, was was communicated with really badly and didn't realise the massive impact that had on his mental health. And he spiralled into, into depression. So it, it's, it's something I find really hard, and you must find hard working in the NHS, that there's this kind of concept of the NHS that we all value and, and as I say almost revere at times and then there's the reality of people's experience and, and how do you marry those two up? I think I think we are blessed to have the NHS you know in most other countries med medical care is unaffordable and really poor quality um, but we are very lucky to have the NHS and you know a service firstly it depends on the people basically who are serving right so i think every contact matters and it it should be standardized for instance everybody in the nhs should have suicide prevention training they should know how to draw up a safety plan they should know how to communicate with families but it is still people centric you know on the day who was in front of you mm -hmm. you know and and of course there's no suicide prevention training even communication styles, you know, we bring ourselves into our jobs. So while you can standardize procedures, you can't standardize every individual communication. And so I think it's really important that the selection of the staff, the retention of the staff, the value that we put on the staff is communicated to them so they stay. You know, look at, look at us right now. There is so much dissatisfaction amongst mm -hmm. the staff. How can we, you know, we can't expect them to give their best when they don't feel valued. It's one of the fundamental principles of leadership, isn't it? You know, how we mm -hmm. make people feel feel fulfilled in their job role and respected in what they, they do. It, it, it's mm -hmm. so, so important. Today, we're talking with our guest, Dr. Sangeeta Mahashan, who lost her son, Saga, to suicide in 2014. Sangeeta, our paths have crossed uh, before, and I must admit that in researching for today's show, when I saw the list of projects you're involved with alongside your day job, I actually started to feel that my life wasn't maybe quite as busy as I <laughs> thought it was. Um, first, let's briefly talk about that day job at Guy's and St. Thomas's NHS Foundation. You've touched on it just a moment ago um, briefly. Um, what is it you, you do there? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I think I've been a doctor for three fifths of my life now. So, and I'm really proud. I, I love what I do. So, as you said, I'm an anesthetist. So, my specialism is in robotic surgery. So, I anesthetize uh, patients for um, um, 
urological cancers. Uh, I also anista, as you know, there are many surgical specialties, but anesthetists cater to them all. So I work in robotics, uh, uh, orthopedics. Um, I've done some amount of obstetric anesthesia where I help women deliver babies uh, as safely as possible and as painlessly as possible. Um, we also, um, so it's essentially theater-based, operating theater-based work. And some of our, because we are a tertiary um, referral center, our case mix is very high risk. So we look after really high-risk patients, okay. uh, which is a joy, which is an absolute pleasure. I was going to say, it sounds hugely rewarding, I have to, to say. Yeah. It is. And um, alongside that, we have educational responsibilities because, as you know, guys, in uh, Tommy's is a big teaching hospital. So we have a large number of undergraduate and postgraduate students who um, get... Uh, you know, dedicated uh, lecture-based teaching, as well as a lot of bedside teaching, which happens in theater. We have a lot of simulation teaching where we simulate difficult scenarios uh, because uh, luckily these difficult scenarios don't happen in real life that often, but trainees need uh, trained. So we simulate them and we have very high fidelity um, simulators where we artificially create these uh, critical incidents like anaphylaxis and uh, heavy blood loss and things like that. And, and, and then the trainees have to respond to a given situation. And that's when we study the human factors, you know, the factors that help us perform to the best of our ability. And we completely acknowledge fatigue and lack of sleep and um you know a lack of communication as very important factors in out in determining outcomes so that's very much part of my job and i love it really it's absolutely fascinating and again an insight into the physical side of, of mental health you know particularly taking into care you know into account the the human factors there as you say before before we talk about some of the the projects and charities you're involved with related to to suicide uh, i understand that raising awareness about the risks associated with suicide amongst medics is something that uh, is is very important to you. Would, you would you like to share a little bit about that Yes, I do believe, Steve, that if I had been trained in suicide prevention, I could have helped my son better. In fact, I mean, I would go as far as saying that my colleagues, if they were trained, you know, together, them and me, we could have worked it out, you know, we could have kept him safe. But I wasn't trained and they weren't trained, you know. In fact, after Sagar's death, I now know that suicide is stigmatized even within medicine. We don't know how to talk about it. We are never taught. It's not on the syllabus. It, it's really interesting you, you say that because I, you know, I, I've used this phrase many times myself when I've when I've been interviewed on the opposite side of the microphone and 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 said, you know, if had I been trained, had I had the knowledge and a very different set of tools uh, 31 months ago we might have had a different outcome with Jordan, but I just didn't know how to have the conversation. I, I didn't know where to start or even what the signs were that I was looking for. Um, you know, so, so even in, in the medical profession, you know, the, the, there's, there's a challenge with this. Um, and, I, and I've heard you well. say that, Steve, and I've heard you say that, Sangeet. I think the difference is that most people would not expect most people outside of the health system to have that kind of training. They would expect people inside the health system to all have that training, wouldn't they? And the problem is that this 
training lies in a field where we don't even know that we don't know it. You know, we think we can manage, you know, but if you look at the statistics, we have been able to reduce the deaths by cardiovascular disease, by AIDS and HIV, by road traffic accidents, drastically over the last couple of decades. Now we have, and cancer, hugely reduced death rates, but suicide death rates have remained the same. And medicine has just made it a public health issue. They don't take any onus of it, but that's wrong. I think we have to take onus of it. And absolutely. That's why it's so important we're talking about it um, um, yes, today. Um, absolutely. In fact, I wrote a paper, uh, an academic paper on human factors in suicide prevention in a medical journal um, so that people understand that, you know, this is just a, 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 a preventable death like many others in which we need to apply ourselves a bit better. Okay, Sangeeta, let me see if I've got this, this right. You're a Churchill Fellow trustee with Papyrus, the suicide prevention charity. You work with support after suicide partnership, as well as devoting time to the compassionate friends, which got to say in the early days following Jordan's suicide was a platform and a group that actually provided me with a great source of comfort in the, the early days. I also understand that uh, your husband and yourself run a couple of online support groups for bereaved parents. Um, I don't know if you get any time off, uh, Sanki, <laughs> to through amongst all this. And we're certainly probably not going to have time to go through all of these. But if, if there's kind of one particularly that kind of stands out that's been really important to, to you, and they all are hugely important, but, but something you, you've been particularly passionate about, which of those have kind of stand out for you, would you say? So I think the first thing I would say is papyrus. You know, being a part of papyrus means the world to me. Uh, it was, uh, when it first happened, I was so baffled by it. I was almost paralyzed. Um, I certainly didn't know where I sat in the world anymore, um, what I would do with my life, um, what was supposed to happen next. <laughs> it wasn't in the script. Uh, I had no idea. It was just like an abyss. And at one of the conferences, the NSPA annual conference, um, I met with the chairman and the CEO of uh, Papyrus. We just happened to be sitting at the same table. And after the meeting, they invited me to be a trustee. And I was uh, really encouraged by that because I said, okay, I can work with people who care, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> The Churchill Fellowship, something that's quite new to me, probably, I, I think, until you um, men mentioned it, um, um, kind of fascinating. Be a lot of people listening today probably haven't come across it and uh, be, be really interested just to hear a little bit about yes. that as well. I think that was such a fabulous opportunity. It, in fact, they're opening uh, their application process again, and it's open till the 13th of September. You should look it out, you know, if anybody's interested, Churchill Fellowship is wonderful. It's an opportunity to get funded, to travel and look into any aspect of life, like arts, community, education, commerce, suicide prevention, whatever, and bring back ideas to the UK and put them in practice. You know, so I looked at the gaps in suicide prevention and how we can bridge them. 
and I went to Australia and America, and I came back with a load of lessons which are on the website now. So that's that's excellent, and and obviously we we can't move on from this section without talking about the work that your your husband and yourself both do, and and obviously supporting bereaved people. You know, I was very conscious of the lack of support as I saw it in in those early days um but um these uh j- just briefly the online sessions you you run is, is there a website or a link that people can go to, to yes get in so, touch? so we, we we set it up because peer support is the one of the most effective supports because you can almost you're guaranteed understanding because you're meeting with people who have been through similar experiences to you and in lockdown everybody was very isolated so this started one and a half years ago where we were literally we were literally invited to start something so it was really an opportunity for us to grow as well and to have a community in lockdown which was and be able to receive and give support you know that's how peer groups work you know it's not it's an equal mutual relationship and uh, yeah, so we call it a circle of remembrance, where we remember three things. We remember the beauty of and the joy our children brought into our lives. We remember the value of our own lives. And thirdly, we remember grace that surrounds us at all times, good mm-hmm. and bad. That's excellent. And if anyone wants to get involved with you, just search Circle of Remembrance? Or? Uh, in fact, core, C-O-R-E uh, hyphen community. Lovely. No, that that just sounds, yeah, ab- absolutely wonderful. Yes, Ankita, I mean, I, I remember that, again, when we first uh, hooked up, um, you were talking about the journey that you'd been on and how it had changed over time and presumably has changed since. And, and you talk about the kind of angry phase of the system letting you down and, and so on. Um, but you actually invited me to some sessions. I remember coming to one of your Compassionate Friends sessions and I was actually surprised that it wasn't really about suicide prevention at all. It was very spiritual. It was very healing and relaxing. And it was talking about being, you know, finding the person that you are and helping people to, to find who they are so that actually reduces their risk of being in any form of distress. And it was a really powerful session. You could hear a pin drop when you were speaking. So is that something you still do now? Yes. So I think, I think you know, when something like this happens, so many questions come up. The mind gets really agitated because it's fighting this reality. But actually, even if you had all the answers, the fact remains that your child is not coming back. You still have to deal with that. And the answers of to deal with that are not on the outside. They are actually within, you know, the peace that we look for, the calm that, you know, we thirst for because we're so upset and aggrieved. That peace can only be found inside. And this is a way to encourage people to take the journey inward. So while my, you know, activism goes on, but I have to still heal myself from within. And that is a different work. Uh, Sangeet, I want to thank you for being a guest on our show today. Uh, Really enjoyed uh, talking with you. Uh, Before we let you go, as I mentioned, it's been almost eight years now since you lost Saga. who is the Sangeeta of 2022, would you say, compared with the Sangeeta of 
pre-October the 16th, 2014? That question um, has many answers, uh, but I will pick a couple for you. Uh, <clears throat> I think this experience has really taught me that joy and sadness they don't they are two sides of the same coin you know only after having experienced such deep sorrow now when i experience joy i experience deep deep joy as well like never before you know and i really appreciate what i have i don't take anything for granted anymore not my time not my life not my relationships I know it's all limited and it's all going to change, you know. So while it's here, it's wonderful. I really am full of gratitude for Sagar's life as well. However brief, it was scintillating. It was just brilliant. And I'm so lucky that I got to be with him for 20 years, you know. And I wouldn't swap that for anything in the world, you know. So. Uh, yeah, so I think, you know, I always thought I was a very compassionate uh, doctor, but now I know that I wasn't as compassionate as I could be before his death, because I lacked compassion for myself. Now, I think I can truly have compassion, not just for my patients, but all their relatives, because I've been there and I have compassion for me. That is really such an important point, I think, to, to, to end on today because, you know, I speak to so many people who feel the guilt still and, and you know, struggle with, you know, could I have done more and, and, and all these, these questions. I've done, I've done it myself and still do on, on occasions. And you know, I think that's such a, an important message to share about having compassion for yourself as part of the healing you know process uh there sangeeta thank you i i feel like i've learned a huge amount uh to, today uh and feel i'm leaving very calm and, and relaxed i don't know about you paul um uh, as everybody well as... says you have such a calming effect on them sangeeta it's, <laughs> thank it's really you lovely. thank you so much it's Brilliant. been lovely but, to but talk to you both thank you no really en enjoyed it thank you sangeeta mahajan thank you for joining us today thank you all the best bye well, Danny, Paul, uh, what an incredible interview with uh, Sangeeta. Um, look, I know this is going to be a familiar question, Paul, I'm probably going to ask at the end of, of each show, but what, what would you hope kind of listeners have really taken away from Sangeeta's story? Uh, I think that, you know, some people will relate directly, um, but as often happens in these situations, it, it, everybody, everybody's story is different. The, the fact that she was working in the system, you know, she was, the system let her down and she was part of that system. I think people find that very challenging and I think they'll find it remarkable how she coped with that. Uh, but there's so many messages and, and it's up to people to take those messages. I, one that sticks in my mind is when she said that she, she looks back now uh, with a new sense of joy, a new sense of joy about the years that she had with Sagar. And um, 
you know, she's now find, found ways to have elevated an elevated sense of joy as well as the sadness. I think that's that's something which yeah, that that, that was that was really important for me. That came through really clearly. And and, and Danny from, you know, you uh, you know, we've sat and listened to Sangeeta there. What what part of the message kind of impacted the most? Do you feel? Um, yeah, I think she's just really such a good example of hope that she's been able to have such a she's able to still have such a positive outlook and achieve so much since her, her son's suicide. Yeah, I, you know, I think the message of, you know, we're looking for hope, aren't we? And, and, and you know, this is what Jordan's Place is, is all about. And, uh, you know, I really felt that came through strongly uh, there. So, well, look, thank you both. That's about it uh, for um, another week. Um, if you've been listening, I hope you found today's conversation enlightening. Suicide is not an easy topic to discuss, of course, but I do hope you'll leave today's show feeling that there is hope and together we can help others find hope too so from danny paul and me your host steve philip look after yourselves and look out for those close to you this has been jordan space and we look forward to having you join us for our next show very soon this This is is yawa Yawa Radio. radio a big thank you for taking the time out to listen to this podcast from the team at Yawa Radio. Remember to check us out live online 24 hours a day, seven days a week at yawaradio.co.uk. And if you'd like to join us as a guest on Yawa Radio or as a guest on the Yawa Radio podcast, we would love to hear from you. Simply email studio at yawaradio.co.uk. Once again, a big thank you for taking the time out to listen. This is the Yawa Radio podcast. Copyright applies. With inspirational guests from around the world, inspirational quotes, the inspirational book of the week, the meditation hour, the quiet zone, and feel good music. Yawa Radio is about well being, happiness, and finding the beauty within. Enjoy, be beautiful, be happy be inspired. This is Yawa Radio.